the San Francisco Experience podcast. Brought to you by Jim Hurley. Independent commentary from a Silicon Valley, California perspective for a global audience. Featuring newsmakers, thought leaders, and authors. Season 19, Episode 7. JFK, Oliver Stone's film. Talking with Sean Chang of the Hill Place movie and TV blog. 2023 will mark the 60th anniversary of the assassination of John F. Kennedy, the 35th President of the United States. While the Warren Commission ruled that Lee Harvey Oswald had acted alone, 60% of Americans still believe that there was a conspiracy to assassinate the president. Sean Chang joins us to discuss the film JFK, which popularized the conspiracy theory. Hi, Sean, and welcome back to the show. Thanks, Jim. Thanks for having me back. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Sean, Oliver Stone's 1991 film about the JFK investigation continues to fan the flames of conspiracies. It had quite an impact on American public opinion back in the 1990s. What are your thoughts about the film in general? It's not one that's one of my favorite films. It's not one that I've really thought a lot about through the years, so it's interesting that you wanted to do a podcast about it. I remember I was in college when the movie came out, and it stirred up a lot of controversy among my classmates There were people who absolutely felt that the premise of the movie was completely ridiculous. And then there were people on the other side who bought into the theory, or at least the the perspective that Oliver Stone was presenting. And I kept hearing all these debates, you know, in the lunchroom and, you know, people were saying like, open up, you know, the documents, show the world, you know, what we haven't seen, et cetera, et cetera. I'd have to say that after having time to reflect on it, to get ready for this podcast, I'd probably be in the other 40%. I don't think there's a conspiracy theory. I think that if there was this vast conspiracy to kill John F. Kennedy, we would know a lot more about it by now than we already do. When I say know a lot more, I'm not talking about, you know, just theories and speculation. I think by now we would have more concrete evidence to to base our opinion on rather than just speculation. Mm -hmm. Um, When you have that many people involved in something, the likelihood of all that many people keeping it a secret and nobody coming forward who had direct knowledge and can present absolute concrete evidence and fact, I find that very unlikely. So Mm -hmm. that's my position on the movie and upon the, the whole conspiracy theory. The film recounts the investigation launched by 1960s New Orleans District Attorney Jim Garrison. To mm-hmm. recap, his theory was that an anti-Fidel Castro group in New Orleans conspired with Lee Harvey Oswald in 1963 to kill the president, who they saw as soft on communism. The investigation culminated in an indictment of New Orleans businessman Clay Shaw, who was acquitted Mm -hmm. by a jury of any wrongdoing. Mm -hmm. So tell us about the storyline, Sean. Well, I mean, it's a very very confusing and confused movie to begin with. Oliver Stone uses a lot of different kinds of film stock, grainy, black and white, widescreen, 35-millimeter color footage. He's trying to create this cavalcade of images to try to 
get you to buy into his theory, you know, that somewhere amidst all of those images, there's the truth. Kevin Costner plays uh, Jim Garrison, and I'd have to say that he's a good actor who I've always liked, but his southern accent is absolutely ghastly in the movie. Uh, <laughs> Sean, is it as bad? Is it as bad as David Craig's New Orleans accent in um, that new series that he's starring in, where where he he portrays what Benedict LeBlanc or something? Daniel Craig. Daniel Craig. Daniel yes, Craig. Yes, yeah. Daniel Craig. Oh well, Daniel Craig at least has has a little bit of an air of a kind of like. He seems a little bit more ease with it. Yes. Uh, Kevin Costner's accent is so ghastly that I'm just going to simply say that even me, you know, with my, you know, being of, of Chinese background, I could do a better Southern <laughs> accent than him. Okay, but 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 in terms of dramatically, the performance is fine. It's an okay performance, yes. but the accent really distracts me. The movie, you know, there's a little bit of an air of sanctimony. His character is very sanctimonious. He's he's going to uncover the truth that nobody else is willing to to uncover. It's here's the thing about the movie. It's entertaining, but not for one second have I ever taken it seriously. The all-star cast at a certain point really undercuts the movie because all you see are these stars coming in and playing these cameos, but they're not. But you never for once believe the characters that they're playing. You're just seeing, you know, Walt, you know, Walter Matthau or Jack Lemmon coming in and you know doing these bit parts or Ed Asner, yes. and it comes across more like you know, that movie. It's a mad, 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 mad world, you know, <laughs> than than something that really has any kind of depth or nuance to it. So, like I said, it's 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 kind of entertaining, but it's kind of entertaining in a trashy sort of way, kind of like a a big television miniseries based on a trashy novel, you know, like a like a Daniel Steele or Jacqueline Suzanne novel because it's so over the top and it's in the way it's presented. The acting is very, very over the top. The way it's directed is over the top. There's not one moment of subtlety or grace to the whole movie. You know, like I said, I it, it's the perfect movie to have on in the background if it's playing on TNT cable or some whatever cable channel with TV commercials while you're doing your laundry and you're ironing your clothes. So I <laughs> Why are you laughing? No, I'm serious. No, you know? I, to your point about it being trashy, the reason it comes across as trashy is mm-hmm. that the investigation by Jim Garrison in the 1960s that I remember was yes, yes. exactly that. It was trashy. It was at the time it was it was seen as uh, it was seen as over the top, exaggerated. It was it wasn't taken seriously. And then of course when when he actually brought uh, Clay Shaw to trial, the jury mm-hmm. was out for I think an hour. Came back and unanimously agree, uh, unanimously exonerated uh, Clay Shaw. So, mm-hmm. so it's in a sense they've captured that the trashiness of the investigation, notwithstanding Kevin Costner's high flown speech to the jury at the end, mm-hmm. where he talks about uh, he talks about you know future generations will continue to question this, but. You know, it, it was interesting. Uh, of course, I lived through that period, and it had a it had a huge impact. The assassination and the investigation had a huge impact on me. But let's just come back for a minute to the Warren Commission because there are really two camps here. There's one camp yeah. who believes in the conspiracy, and Oliver Stone. And we'll come back to him in a minute. Oliver Stone mm-hmm. plays to that to that peanut gallery, and and of course, it's it's still a majority. It's still a majority of of the American public, which it has been from day one, from November twenty second, nineteen sixty three. 52% mm-hmm. of Americans felt that more than Lee Harvey Oswald was involved. It peaked at about 81% of Americans during the 70s mm-hmm. and 80s who believed that there was conspiracy. And currently around in the 2010s, 2020s, it's around 60%, high 50s, 60%. So it's a conspiracy that's never really gone away. It's the grandfather of all conspiracy 
these. But let's just come back to the, the other side of the story, which is the Warren Commission. On November 29th, 1963, a week after the assassination, President yes, yes. Lyndon Johnson appointed the Warren Commission, which was led by Chief Justice Earl Warren, to investigate the assassination. Now, that commission was made up of all men. They were all po politicians. The former head of the CIA that Kennedy had fired, Alan Dulles, he was on that commission. Nevertheless, mm -hmm. their star witness for the Warren Commission was Ruth Payne. She's, yes. de she's depicted in the film. I think the name that they use, they don't call her Ruth Payne in the film. They call her, I think, Janet Williams or something. And of course, I interviewed her back in December mm -hmm. here on the, the San Francisco Experience. She's an elderly lady today, but she's still very credible when it and has, has full recall about Lee Harvey Oswald. Now, mm -hmm. Lee Harvey Oswald actually spent the night in her home the night before the assassination. His rifle was stored in her garage. She got him the job at the Texas School Book Depository. And mm -hmm. Marina Oswald was living with Ruth at the time of the assassination. Ruth believes that the Warren Commission got it right. She was also interviewed by Jim Garrison before the grand jury, and she testified at the Clay Shore trial. Mm -hmm. And it's just interesting that she, who was directly involved, who knew Lee Harvey Oswald and saw him every weekend because he came out to her house to visit with his wife and kids in her living room. And she said, nobody, nobody ever called him on the phone. Nobody ever came to visit. Where were all these conspiracists who would have been plotting this crime of the century? Why weren't they stopped? Why weren't they in contact with him when he was at her house every weekend before the assassination? That was her point. But mm -hmm. let's just come back to, let's come back to the film itself because there are some strong, but you're right, cameo appearances. You're right. It is a little bit like it's a mad, mad world with lots of cameos, yeah. but there are a couple exactly. of, there are a couple of cameos that that are that are very that are very compelling one of which is donald sutherland who plays mm -hmm, this yes. he plays that retired military officer he makes a very persuasive case i mean he's a he's a terrific actor and he he makes this persuasive case in his conversation on a park bench with kevin costner playing uh, jim garrison also crazy joe pesci playing david ferry when he's sequestered in a hotel room motel room with jim garrison and his staff and he's kind of going off the deep end that's a very powerful performance. But then let's talk about the characters who really make up the film. Tommy Lee Jones and yes. Kevin Bacon. Talk to me about talk to me about their performances. I I mean I don't know where to begin. Um, <laughs> I remember at the, I remember at the time because the characters are meant to be gay, and because there are scenes showing them kind of like what in, in sort of like French kind of a, they were dressed in drag, and I remember people got really offended by that at that time and i think the mere fact that oliver stone decided to, to, to pick them that way demonstrates that they he wasn't really interested in trying to understand who they were as human beings he was just trying to create an archetype something um, something very garish to you know get a point across it, it, he made them plot devices and mm -hmm. i think by dramatizing them you know in drag and behaving that way they were just devices for him to make a certain point uh, they weren't they weren't meant to be characters that you were actually meant to be interested in or find compelling or insightful or anything like that they're both very good actors i actually thought kevin bacon was better between the two of them because he didn't overact you know tommy lee jones in that one he's given a role that that allows him to go completely out of his mind in terms of you know being very mannered in his performance so 
you know what you know what what it was for me thinking about this movie getting ready for this is that it's a little bit of a southern melodrama not unlike two movies that were made in the 1960s and the years after the kennedy assassination one was arthur penn's the chase that came out in 1966 and the other one was Otto preminger's hurry sundown and the joke i always made about those movies is that they're both southern fried melodramas that you can get in either original recipe or extra crispy and i would say <laughs> <laughs> and I would say that JFK falls into the category of a Southern fried melodrama, but because he's so over the top, it, it, it's not done in the original recipe. This movie is done extra crispy. You know, it, everything is slathered, slathered on with grease, you know, with heavy handedness, you know, you know, just, just deep fried to the point where, you know, the movie just looks even deep fried because you know all the images are done through this kind of like brown kind of gauzy look to the, to it and stuff. I mean, if you can't tell from my tone of voice, the level of like I I'm I'm not a fan of the movie even though I find it entertaining in a trashy way but if you can sense that from what I'm saying to you that's the thing I think the reason why I find the movie completely ludicrous is I find Oliver Stone completely ludicrous I think the fact that 30 years ago he was considered one of our most important filmmakers shows people just at that time either didn't have the right perspective on him or they were fooled into thinking he was more talented than, than he is the fact that he isn't really considered that interesting a director anymore demonstrates how short-lived didactic filmmaking can be. You know, his movies are all political. There's no subtlety to his politics. There's no nuance to it. It's not really about the characters. It's really about just using the characters as a device to get across, you know, his political views of the world, because clearly being in the the 1960s and 70s and going to Vietnam deeply affected him. But I'm kind of glad that he's not that important a filmmaker anymore, because if we just we're inundated for the last few years with one film after another with him telling us the world is awful and America is awful. I don't think, you know, people could handle it anymore. Well, it's interesting. He was interviewed on Joe Rogan's podcast mm-hmm. fairly recently, I think in the last year or two. And he's yes. still he's still beating that conspiracy drum and he he just won't let go of it. I have an opinion about that. Yeah, what, what what's okay. your thoughts? Well, I think it, it kind of reflects not just him, but also that whole generation that believes in the conspiracy theory. Um, I'm a preface it by saying, you know, listeners, please forgive me. You know, I'm, I'm making a generalization here. I'm not trying to make an, a, a statement to personally offend people. But I came to a conclusion that a lot of times the reason why a lot of people wanted to believe in the conspiracy theory is a lot of people in the 1960s bought into the whole myth of Camelot. Mm-hmm. Okay. I respect the Kennedys up to a point, but not completely, because I the womanizing and the corruption and whatever makes me see them for the flawed people that they are. But there are people out there who still believe in the whole notion of Camelot and, and of Jackie and this and that, and that uh, JFK was going to make the world better and that he was assassinated because the world is filled with evil men that want to make things evil, make things evil for their own nefarious purposes, and he was just pure notion that just some random pathetic guy like Lee harvey oswald just took him out and you know it's not good enough for them the notion that some random person could take out you know their god they just don't want to believe in it so it's easier to believe that there's this random conspiracy of secret evil white men out there to destroy the world for their own purposes it's a lot easier for them to buy into that and i think oliver stone you know is one of those people that suffers from it so that's the reason why i i've always been a bit skeptical and i'm in that 40 percent that doesn't believe that there's anything more to it I, i can acknowledge that the warren commission there's there's facts that are inconsistent and whatever have you 
but in the conversation before we we even started, you know, you mentioned that this was not a trial where there was another side and a defense attorney that could basically raise issues and have, you know, the facts deeply, uh, deeply examined and, and adjudicated and whatever have you. So I think when people work on a project like the Warren Commission, it's very easy that you, lo- you lose perspective. You can't see the forest from the trees. You think everything that you're writing is consistent, but there's nobody giving an outside objective perspective to say, you know what, that doesn't add up. So yes. I don't think that I don't think those little things being inconsistent necessarily spells, you know, a um, conspiracy theory. I just think that basically sometimes they put pieces of, of facts together and the way they wrote it, and they didn't realize that some some people would nitpick about it for decades and decades to come because they have too much time on their hands. Mm-hmm. Did you notice that uh, Jim Garrison actually got a cameo? He plays Earl Warren interviewing Jack Ruby. And Jack, Ru- yes. Jack Ruby is pleading with him to please take him back to Washington, D.C., and he'll spill the beans. And Jim Garrison, in his judicial robes, playing the chief justice, solemnly intones that he, he can't possibly do that and can't take him back to Washington to uh, to let him spill the beans. So um, Exactly. Yes, yes. I think, I, I mean, I, I mean, Garrison, I think, in my opinion, seems to be a, a man with a huge, enormous ego. So yes. I think putting him in that movie and having him play play that role fed into that ego. But his acting is no better than Kevin Costner's accent in the movie. So <laughs> I, I, like I said, it, it's very interesting that we're talking about this because really, truly, among f- friends of mine who are really passionate about the subject of cinema, JFK is not a movie that comes up often. It's not a movie that those of us that really care about cinema as both an entertainment and an art form even think twice about. It's a flash in the pan kind of movie. I mentioned earlier, um, and I compared it to It's a Mad, 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 Mad World. And I think there's a little bit of an apt comparison because that was directed by Stanley Kramer, who back in the day was this continually Oscar-winning director. He was the director that would do hard-hitting political movies, et cetera, et cetera. And nobody cares about his movies decades later. And same with Oliver Stone. I think that's the reason why, as filmmakers, they re- people really need to focus you know, on telling stories, telling stories about characters that people can relate to, or just entertaining stories that basically take people away from their problems. A three-hour-plus pl- movie to tell the world, you know, to tell, tell people, like, the world that you live in completely sucks and the country has lied to you. I mean, everyone knows the country's probably lied to them to some degree or another to begin with. I mean, why do people want to, you know, subject themselves to that kind of heavy-handed, depressing message? I, I will say this. It's not that I'm against movies that have conspiracy theories. I'll simply take the time to mention that about 12 years after the assassination, maybe 11 years after the assassination, actually, Warren Beatty starred in a film called The Parallax View, directed by Alan Pakula. And that's a movie about a political assassination and the conspiracy behind it. And I will say to to the San Francisco Experience listeners that if you want to watch a film about conspiracy surrounding a political assassination, I would rec- recommend that over JFK any day. Mm-hmm. Now, just playing devil's advocate with JFK for mm-hmm. a minute. When this sure. film came out in 1991, when it first came out in 1991... I was looking forward to going to see it. But then when I heard that it was based on the Jim Garrison investigation, it that yes, kind of yes. that, that kind of burst my balloon. I, I wasn't I wasn't as interested. How, but really, I, how so? Tell but, me. Well, how so? because because I never regarded the I never regarded the Jim Garrison investigation as being a serious investigation. I always mm-hmm. I always saw it as grandstanding. I saw mm-hmm. it as very short on facts, very short on detail. The mere fact that it took took a couple of years to bring Clay Shaw to trial, 
And that he was acquitted in one hour just kind of illustrated the fact that that the evidence that was presented to the jury was was not compelling in any way, shape or form. However, one thing that that trial did, it put conspiracy theory on trial, if you mm-hmm. will. And 12 jurors listened to this conspiracy nonsense and within an hour returned a not guilty verdict. So in a sense, I think that the that trial served a purpose in, if you will, putting conspiracy theory on trial because we never had a trial of the assassin of JFK, but at least we had a trial of the conspiracy theory and the jury rejected it. One other factor, and again, playing, playing uh, devil's advocate, one other factor yes. about the film is that it did have, at the time in 1991, it had a huge impact on public opinion. And, yes, yes. If, and if I'm not mistaken, it actually prom- prompted the Congress to enact the JFK Assassination Records Board, which, mm-hmm. which actually came up with a schedule, which has been largely ignored. Nevertheless, it came up with a schedule for the release of all of the documents relating to the assassination over a certain period of time. As I said, on many occasions, it's been ignored by successive presidents. So th- that film, as melodramatic as it was, that film did have an impact on public opinion, which then forced politicians to act in the creation of the JFK Assassination Board. If I'm not mistaken, I think it was signed into law by George Bush the first. So it's a while while it's not a film, while while it may not be a great film and from a cineast perspective, it was yes. certainly part of the popular culture. It was yes. it, it certainly had an effect and it forced the Congress to act. Oh, I, I'm not disputing that at all. Clearly, it affected people to that degree. I just wasn't one of them. And I still kind of scratch my head and thinking, you know, how can you get so caught up in something that even the filmmaker himself said that he fictionalized certain things to make a dramatic point? Um, and how can you get so caught up in a film that is that purports to say that, you know, this is going to refute what has been accepted as fact? But then so many articles that came out at that time pointing out, you know, all the factual errors the film had. That's the reason why, you know, I accept cinema is not meant to be documentary. It's not meant to tell things in a a completely factual manner. I accept that. But I just thought that Oliver Stone was a bit of a hypocrite and wanted to have his cake and eat it, too. I will give it one thing. This is the little this is the little sliver of something I will do. I will give. I'm not a fan of Stone to begin with, but but it's the only Oliver Stone movie I find somewhat entertaining. So if I had to basically, you know, duck on a desert island with with one Oliver Stone movie, I guess I would pick JFK. But I wouldn't want to be stuck on a desert island to begin with. Well, there okay. you go. I no, I, I hear you. Well, Sean, in yeah. the remaining few minutes of the podcast, do you have any closing thoughts for us either on Oliver Stone or this JFK film? And one one final thought. Conspiracy sure. yeah, we've seen a profusion of conspiracy theories on a whole host of different issues, mm-hmm. especially yeah. it seems over the last uh, five, five, six, seven years. Talk to me about that. Talk to me a little bit about the profusion of other conspiracy theories and how cinema has treated them. Oh, like what? What, what in particular? I'm, nothing's coming to my mind now, immediately. I, you know, I, you know, as I as I think about it, there's no other major conspiracy theory I think that's really come that's that's been given this platform of a of a major film the way this one was. 
Adam. Well, I'll just talk about conspiracy theories in general. It'll build upon what I said earlier. I think one of the reasons why people want to believe a conspiracy theory, aside from what I just said, that they don't want to accept the mundane realities of life, building upon what you said earlier about the woman that you interviewed who was Oswald's landlady. Ruth you know, Payne. Ruth Payne. Ruth, Ruth Payne, exactly. The reason why she doesn't believe it is because she experienced what Oswald was like in terms of his everyday, mundane, boring reality. Okay, she has not raised him and elevated him to mythic status the way the media has, history has, or Oliver Stone has. Mm -hmm. And when you really know the real, you know, the mundane, you know, reality, you can kind of see through the BS. People who don't have that one-on-one -on -one experience she had with Har Lee Harvey Oswald, they're more likely to basically elevate. Um, you know, his, him to mythic status, his role in it to mythic status, who he may have known to mythic status. Because, like I said, people don't want to accept that someone who was basically a loser could have taken out someone that a president that they love that much. I also think one of the reasons why maybe people are more inclined to believe in conspiracy theories is that it means that whatever is negative or bad in their life, um, it's the fault of somebody else. It reflects our increasingly victim-oriented society where someone did this to me because you know it's part of this large overall scheme to keep people like me down or people like you know this certain group down. So there has to be a conspiracy. And I, as I get older, completely reject that as an outlook on life because no matter you know what happens and how much you know life can stink or suck, there's a lot that we can do in our own lives to make things better. I think if people, you know, were not so passive about things, we wouldn't be so interested in conspiracy theories and we'd actually be spending our time trying to make our lives better. The final thing I just simply want to say has nothing to do with conspiracy theories. It's merely more something that makes me think about um, the randomness of actors' careers. I think I mentioned it to you a couple of days ago, and I'd like to mention it quickly. Sure. Is that there's a, there's a small part in the movie played by an actress. Uh, her name is Joe Anderson, and she's the witness that is in the car, you know, on the yes. freeway. She only has two scenes. And for the uninitiated, Joe Anderson was this rising young actress at that moment who started, you know, gaining some attention and was doing films and TV. I even, I even remember um, a little blurb, I think, in Hollywood Reporter of Variety saying, Joe Anderson's been cast in a key supporting role in JFK's, uh, Oliver Stone's movie, JFK. And it looked like she was on her way up in the world. Um, I think she was re represented by Creative Artists Agency, which was the biggest agency at the time. Uh-huh. And she had a decent career, a journeyman career. She kept working all the way up till 2010, but she never, you know, became a star. And the the one takeaway I take from JFK has nothing to do with the conspiracy, has nothing to do with the assassination. It's more that every time I see her, I just think how fleeting and random it is that somebody could come along and for about five minutes, people look at her as somebody who could become a star um, and it doesn't pan out that way. So that either demonstrates how I'm, I'm completely shallow and I have I, and I'm not even worried about what really happened with John F. Kennedy's assassination. Or maybe it's because I have other things on my mind. But I will conclude by also saying that Sissy Spacek, who in the 70s gave some good performances, demonstrated in this movie that she really had a limited shelf life yes. as a major film star because she is so annoying as the wife. Yes. Okay. But I don't the wife fully of Jim blame, Garrison. Yes. The wife of Jim Garrison. Yeah. I don't fully blame her though, because uh, Oliver Stone, he's entitled to do this 
what I'm about to say because he's a filmmaker with his own vision and he's entitled to do what he wants. One key element in his movies was he was never particularly sympathetic with the women in his movies and they either came across very unsympathetically or basically wimpy or whiny and throughout this movie the women are either really really you know unsympathetic or they're victims or they're whiny and it's it's not I mean it's it's not a positive uh, you know, it's not a positive dramatization or even an interesting dramatization of women at that time. And there were a lot of things going on with women in the 1960s that I think Oliver Stone could have tapped into when he made this movie. Yes. So anyway, I'll, I'll hand it back to you, Jim. Well, listen, Sean, as always, I really appreciate your in-depth view, both of this film and film in general. And oh, uh, thank you again for joining us. Oh, you're welcome. And for our listeners, the San Francisco Experience is celebrating our third anniversary in March. Featured on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, and most podcast platforms, we have listeners in 65 countries. This has been the San Francisco Experience with Jim Herlihy, coming to you from San Francisco.